Welcome back to Attorney Time, the legal podcast for the business-minded, hosted by attorneys at the law firm Holly Troxel. Attorney Time brings legal expertise to you. In each episode, Holly Troxel's team of experienced attorneys will cover a broad range of legal topics, from intellectual property and patents to tips for startup companies. Hello, uh, my name is Rick Smith. I'm with the Holly Troxel Law Firm. I'm here with Jonathan Wheatley, also of the firm. And we are here today to talk about tax appeals. First, a little bit about me and Jonathan uh, and about the firm. The firm is uh, the oldest and largest law firm in Idaho. Um, We are primarily a business law firm and cover a lot of different practice areas, including tax. Uh, I am head of the tax group in the firm. I've been with the firm since 1979. I'm also a CPA. Uh, I've kept that license because it is so valuable for tax work in general. Uh, Jonathan is also an attorney, uh, relatively young uh, associate in our firm, but uh, a rising star in the tax appeal area. Thanks, Rick. And he's uh, he's he's learning this quickly, so he's going to help out. Already has helped out in this presentation in, in getting prepared for it. Jonathan has a master's in accounting and tax from Boise State, in addition to his law degree. So we want to talk about uh, tax appeals in general, uh, both federal and state. And it, it's a big area. You you could take an entire class in in college or law school on this topic. So we're just going to cover some of the basics and hit some high points. I want to start with some overall overarching threshold principles that anybody considering an appeal should keep in mind and, and, and really considering representing somebody in an appeal, because I, I think that's the primary uh, audience we're speaking to uh, are professionals, uh, CPAs or attorneys who are considering are representing somebody in an appeal. Not to say that this wouldn't be also uh, valuable for for any taxpayer, uh, but the focus is the focus of this will be on representing people in an appeal. Uh, the first thing you need to consider is are 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 you capable of handling the appeal? Uh, I see this a lot uh, with CPAs, and we do a lot of work with CPAs, and really enjoy working with CPAs. And when we do an appeal. We work together with CPAs as much as possible. Um, But I've seen occasions where CPAs try to to go a little further than they should in the appeal process. So you can handle, CPAs can can certainly represent and and are better uh, professionals to represent taxpayers through the audit stage. But once it gets to the appeal, uh, the the CPA really should start to uh, associate with an attorney to assist with the remainder of an appeal. And if you're an attorney, uh, just because you're an attorney doesn't mean that you are capable of handling an appeal. <clears throat> First of all, you've got to have the experience that's necessary and the background. Um, and in the area of uh, state taxation, um, I mean, I do a lot of work in Idaho, of course, but uh, I've done work in other states as well. And you need to be sure you're either licensed in another state or you determine whether or not you have to be licensed to handle a particular issue, or you associate with 
another lawyer who is licensed in the state and who is more familiar with the principles. I am also licensed in Montana and in Washington. Uh, but even in those states, if I have a case in one of those states, I will often associate with another lawyer who knows the local practice a little better, knows who the judges are, um, knows the kind of lay of the land locally uh, much better than I would. So you need to be sure you have the, the competence to handle the case. And then you get to, we get to other kind of overarching threshold issues, uh, one of which is where do you file the case? If it's a tax, if it's a federal tax appeal, you sometimes have two options. Uh, one of which is to go through the audit process, uh, wait until you get the final uh, deficiency notice, and then file a petition in tax court. Alternatively, you can pay the tax and file for a refund claim in U.S. District Court. Uh, I'll get more into that option in a little while. If it's in state court, it's at the, if it is at the administrative level, the only place to start the appeal process is by filing an appeal with the uh, state administrative body. At least that's the way it is in most states, and that's the way it is in Idaho. You have to file your administrative appeal with the tax commission, or if it's a property tax case, with the, the Board of Equalization. It is, uh, it's called exhausting administrative remedies. Before you can go to court, you have to file with the tax commission or with a county board in a property tax case. Uh, now, when, when do you have to file an appeal? Uh, another kind of overarching issue here. Uh, it varies with each type of tax. It varies depending on the stage of the case but it is something that every lawyer and every CPA has to be absolutely locked into in terms of knowing when to file an appeal. You miss it by one day, uh, you're out. Uh, you, 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 a lot of times in, in tax areas, you can make a mistake. Uh, you can try to, to show that there was reasonable cause for making a mistake and you shouldn't be penalized. But that is not the case with uh, the time for filing an appeal. If you miss it by one day, your appeal will be uh, denied, and it's time to notify your malpractice carrier that uh, you've made a mistake uh, because that's, that's pretty much automatic malpractice at that point. So uh, make sure you know what the dates are, the deadlines are, and don't wait until the last day. I always try to, to file a few days ahead of time just in case there is some uh, problem with the filing. Uh, maybe you didn't uh, uh, enclose the right, the right amount of the filing fee. Uh, you know, if you're $5 short on the, on the uh, filing fee, uh, maybe it's not going to be considered a valid appeal. So I would, uh, I would definitely file it early and give yourself time to correct any mistake. Okay, let's talk about IRS appeals. As I mentioned, uh, CPAs, or, or maybe if, you, if you're working for a company, uh, the in-house accounting staff at a company will be handling the, the audit usually uh, right up through the issuance of the final deficiency notice. Um, CPAs can do that. They're usually better able to do that. Uh, they're usually a little cheaper than, than lawyers will be in handling appeals. 
So uh, we, we usually don't, Jonathan and I usually don't even get involved in representing taxpayers at the audit stage. But once you get the, in, in federal tax parlance, it's the, the usually called the 30-day notice. It's the preliminary determination by the audit staff of the amount of the deficiency uh, will include the final audit report, identify the areas in which the auditor believes uh, the taxpayer's returns have been in error. Uh, that is a stage where you can start to get legal counsel involved uh, because that's the stage where you can request uh, an appeal through the IRS, the IRS Office of Appeals. And again, I think, uh, I think CPAs are, are qualified to do that. You don't have to have a lawyer to get involved in the appeals office process, but it's a, a stage in the case where you really should consider doing that. Are there any non-legal reasons as to why you might want to get a lawyer involved as opposed to a CPA when you're in these early stages? I don't think so. Uh, I mean, a reason not to get a lawyer involved at the audit stage perhaps is to avoid uh, alerting uh, the IRS that there are issues out there that you're you know, so worried about that you need to get a lawyer involved. It kind of depends on the issue. Uh, but uh, usually it's a matter of cost. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you don't want to get two professionals involved in a case at, at too early a stage because then you really start to, to run, up, run up into a bill. Um, so anyway, you get the 30-day uh, the letter. Uh, it, it will include a, in instructions and guidance on how to appeal. Uh, I think it'll make reference to IRS publication number five, or at least it should. And you just need to follow the instructions in, in that publication as to what is included, uh, what is what should be included in, in an appeal um, that will get the, the case to the appeal office. Um, that'll include a statement of all the relevant facts, uh, include any relevant documents, and that you need to submit a statement from the taxpayer signed under penalties of perjury that the statement of facts you're giving is, is correct. Um, you want to provide, and this is where having a lawyer might be helpful, you want to provide whatever legal authority is available uh, to support your case. And you need to include a power of attorney. If you're appointing somebody new, uh, you always have to have a power of attorney giving them authorization. The appeals process in this area is, is not handled locally. Uh, it'll be assigned to an appeals officer in either Portland or Seattle, uh, potentially other locations too. It depends on uh, you know the type of case and probably the the staffing ability of uh, the people in Portland or Seattle. Uh, the appeals office within the IRS is independent of the audit function. And you know you sometimes wonder if is that really the case or are they just saying that's the case? But in my experience, it really is, it really has been the, the, the reality that you get an independent look from the appeals office of both the factual and the legal issues. Now, the appeals officer is going to have the authority 
to either assist in a settlement of the case or actually decide a case, uh, at least adverse to the the, uh, IRS, actually decide a case uh, on the spot without without any further action. I had one case recently, and this was uh, where the appeals office was, was involved later in the process after the tax court petition was filed, where we presented information to the appeals officer, um, did a, a thorough legal analysis that hadn't been provided uh, earlier in the process. Uh, and instead of initiating settlement discussions or uh, making a settlement offer, uh, the appeals officer just decided the case in our favor. Um, they had to get IRS counsel to sign off on the stipulation, but um, there was never any question that that was going to that was going to happen. So the appeals office is definitely independent uh, of the audit function. Um, you know, they they may have people who used to be auditors. You always worry about that about what their their bias is going to be. Um, but I think in general you can you can assume that they're they're going to be objective. When a case does involve settlement, and again, this could have happened, and let me first cover the other alternative here. You can get into the appeals process after the 30-day letter is sent. Or sometimes taxpayers don't do that. They just wait for the final deficiency assessment to be issued, then file their petition in tax court. And then, especially if no uh, reference has been made to the appeals office up to that point, the appeals office will reach out to the taxpayer and say, okay, do you want to try to get together and see if we can resolve this case? That has been the the situation in the two most recent tax court cases I've been involved in. For one reason or another, uh, the taxpayer did not try to exercise uh, his or her appeal rights through the administrative process, but we did it after the tax court petition was filed. One of the cases is the one I mentioned where it just got completely dismissed. The other one, we had negotiations with the appeals officer. Appeals officer asked for a lot of documentation that for some reason the auditor had not requested. We provided the documentation and then did a little back and forth with the appeals officer on what a fair settlement would be. The appeals office is authorized to settle a case based on what they call hazards of litigation. Uh, If the appeals officer believes, for instance, that there's, let's say, a 50% chance that the IRS would lose the case, then you could probably expect there'd be a settlement of around 50% of the the total deficiency. Um, So that's uh, that's the way the appeals process works in the administrative level before you get into tax court or district court. I want to take just a second to talk about uh, uh, penalty appeals. The process of submitting a protest for the assessment of, of a penalty is, is pretty similar, but the appeal is, is handled through a different office. And penalty appeals usually involve the question 
of whether a penalty can be waived because the taxpayer had reasonable cause for filing a, a, a late return or filing a return taking a certain position uh, or, or maybe not paying the tax on time. Uh, one rule that you, everybody needs to be aware of, and it's, it's not that old a rule, maybe 10 years or so, uh, there's, there's a procedure now where taxpayers are given, it's kind of a one bite at the apple uh, remedy uh, or relief if it's a, a late payment uh, or late filing issue in particular, uh, if it is the first time that a taxpayer, I guess it's only a late filing issue, if it's the first time a taxpayer has ever uh, filed late in this context, then there is an automatic waiver of the penalty. Uh, I've taken advantage of that a, a couple of times. So it's, it's a very useful <laughs> procedure. If that procedure doesn't apply, then there's uh, lots of arguments for why you might have reasonable cause for taking the position that you have. If there's uncertainty in the law, for instance, uh, that's what I usually argue is there's, there's case authority for my position. So uh, I ought not be penalized for taking that position on the return. Uh, and kind of a variation of that is if you've relied on counsel or on your CPA for the position you've taken, um, there, that is often a basis for waiving a penalty. Now, I just want to briefly touch on uh, what some of the substantive issues may be on appeal. Uh, and, and of course, there's thousands of different variations of issues that could be, uh, could be appealed. I mean, it depends on whatever issue comes up during an audit, and, and there could be you know, thousands of those types of issues. But a lot of issues we see uh, in, involve uh, reasonable compensation. Uh, is the, the compensation paid to an officer or an owner or both? Is it reasonable? Uh, and sometimes that can work both ways. It, it could be seen as being too high uh, or in cases of sub-S corporation, uh, that, that little workaround uh, taxpayers try to use where you try to reduce the employment taxes by having a low compensation to an officer it could be that the compensation is too low. Uh, their, their valuation disputes are very common in, in appeals. Um, one, of the, one of the big areas in appeals is the uh, substantiation of deductions. Um, you know, very often uh, deductions are, are denied because uh, they are not uh, substantiated in the way that the, the auditor is requiring. In this area, keep in mind, uh, there's a, a case, an old case called the Cohen case that has uh, generated what is now the Cohen rule that even if you can't substantiate all of your deductions, the deductions will be allowed if a taxpayer can provide a reasonable estimate of the amount of deduction if there is a factual basis for the estimate. So always keep in mind the, the Cohen uh, opportunity in, in getting through an audit or an appeal. So moving into the, the process and, and the, the options here after the administrative level, 
The first one is is the tax court and the one that is most often used. Uh, you have to file your petition in tax court within 90 days of receipt of the final determination, which we call the 90-day letter. It can only be filed by an attorney. Uh, here again, I've had cases involving CPAs where they prepared the petition. Uh, they might have, they would have filed a petition if they were able to do so, but they had the taxpayer file the petition on what we call a pro se basis, which means on, on his own, without needing a lawyer, you can still represent yourself in tax court. Uh, but then the taxpayer is kind of left adrift without any help and, you know, without any understanding of, uh, of how the tax process works. So, uh, you know, I've gotten involved in cases like that after the petition has already been filed. So just be aware, you got to get a lawyer involved at some point um, in the tax court process. The tax court, uh, the, the, the case can be heard uh, in Boise. If, if you have, if you live in, taxpayer lives in Boise uh, or lives in Southern Idaho, you can, you can request that the trial be held in the, uh, in the office in the area or city where a tax court judge will visit. Tax court judges, we call them kind of circuit judges. They, they go from city to city uh, throughout the region. And, uh, you know, Boise is one, one of the places they, they come twice a year. So you can have the case heard in, in Boise. If you live somewhere else, uh, if you live in Spokane, if you live in you know, Portland, then you'd probably want to have the case heard in one of those cities. After the petition is filed, there's some discovery between the parties. The, the taxpayer provides whatever other information has not been provided during the audit that the taxpayer is going to rely on at the trial. You can request similar information from the, um, from the IRS. The IRS is going to be represented by an IRS attorney. And again, there are none of those in Boise. Um, they'll be out of Portland or Seattle, typically. After six months to a year after the petition is filed, it probably will be set for trial in Boise if that's where the case is heard. Tax court cases are different than a lot of civil litigation because the tax court rules require that the parties make significant efforts to stipulate to as many facts as possible prior to the trial so that there are relatively few facts that need to be litigated before the tax court. That's why if you look at, at a tax court docket uh, for Boise, there could be 30 cases that are set over a two-day period. Uh, and that's for a couple of reasons. Of those 30 cases, I'll bet 28 will be settled uh, before, uh, before the tax judge gets to Boise. And of those that are not settled, they've narrowed down the issues that need to be litigated so that uh, it, it can be a pretty efficient process. Once the tax court issues a decision, uh, there's another avenue of appeal, and that is to the Ninth Circuit Court, Ninth Circuit court of Appeals. And then, of course, there's the, uh, the option of going to the U.S. Supreme Court if you don't like the, the result from the Court of Appeals. The chances are not good that the U.S. Supreme Court would take a case. They, they don't take very many cases. The alternative to tax court is the U.S. District Court. Again, uh, as I mentioned before, uh, before you can get into district court, you have to pay the tax. 
then you file a claim for refund on a form that the taxpayer uh, or that the IRS makes available. Uh, although, frankly, I think the rules allow for a claim for refund to be in any in any form as long as it's clear that it is a claim for refund. The claim for refund that has to be filed first with the IRS has to be made within three years from the date you filed your original return or two years from the date you paid the tax, whichever is later. And then the case must be filed within two years from the disallowance of a claim by the IRS. So you can see that a claim for refund gives you, you know, a lot of additional time to, uh, to keep pursuing your claim. I mean, it could be you add up those, those options and you've got, you know, five years from the date you filed your original return um, before you actually have to file a lawsuit. A jury trial is available in U.S. district court cases, and that's a definite advantage. Uh, I had a case involving a penalty appeal where we requested a jury, and uh, I think we were able to settle the case in part because the the IRS's attorney was a little bit afraid of what an Idaho jury might do in an IRS claim. By the way, the attorney involved in district court cases is not an IRS attorney in the same fashion as, as a tax court appeal. Attorneys in U.S. district court cases are assigned by the U.S. Department of Justice, and they're very, they're very good, uh, and, and they're usually very tough. Uh, it, it, that was the, that's been my experience anyway. Um, and there, you know, it may be tougher to settle cases uh, in district court than it is uh, through the tax court and with the help of, a, of an appeals officer. Aside from, from not paying and from having in tax court or having a jury trial available in district court, are there any other considerations that, that might come into play when just deciding what, what form you want to be in? I think I've pretty much covered cover the considerations. Again, if you've got a an issue like I had with this penalty where you think a jury might be to your advantage, it probably would be better to file to pay the tax and, and claim a refund. Um, and by the way, I, I say you have to pay the tax before you can go into U.S. District Court. There is an exception to that. And by the way, that's called the full payment rule. There is an exception with employment taxes. If you are challenging an employment tax or an employment tax penalty, you can pay the tax associated with one quarter, uh, one calendar quarter uh, for one employee. And that's sufficient to satisfy the full payment rule and get into district court. Uh, you know, the, I guess the other consideration, Jonathan, is is timing. To you're probably going the district court route. It's probably going to be a more lengthy process than than going the tax court route. So, okay, that takes care of federal appeals. I'm going to move to state appeals here, and my focus is going to be on Idaho because that's where uh, I've handled the most appeals. But again, I've I've done a lot of appeals in in other western states, especially. And the process is similar in many respects, but you really have to pay attention to differences in state law uh, to be sure. Here in Idaho, 
income tax appeals and sales tax appeals are handled pretty much the same way. Uh, at the administrative level, the appeal is to the state tax commission. After you're done with the tax commission, you have an option to go to the board of tax appeals, or you can go to state district court. Uh, let me pause there because it's, it's kind of a complicated set of choices. You can go to the board of tax appeals, and if you lose at the board of tax appeals, you can appeal to state district court. Uh, or after the administrative level, you can just go straight to state district court. I sometimes caution my clients that, well, why go to the Board of Tax Appeals at all then if it could be kind of a superfluous exercise? Uh, because if the other side win uh, loses, they could appeal to district court and you're right back in district court where you would have been anyway. Um, sometimes it, it might make sense, the, the Board of Tax Appeals, especially in property tax appeals, has kind of an equity uh, orientation where they may decide a case based on what they think is fair as opposed to what is kind of strictly by the book. So it can be to a taxpayer's advantage to go to the board. And in those cases, especially small dollar cases, the, the other side, the county or the state tax commission might not appeal. So it wouldn't be a, a total waste of time. Uh, for property tax appeals, the cases are handled, you file your case initially in the County Board of Equalization, and then appeals go from there to the Board of Tax Appeals and or to State District Court, again, with that same set of options in terms of the election to go to the Board of Tax Appeals or not. For income and sales tax appeals before the Tax Commission, the, the process is the same for both types of taxes. Uh, after the audit, the staff will have issued a Notice of Deficiency Determination. We use the abbreviation NODD. And then it's kind of similar to, to, to IRS protests at that point. You send in a letter with all the relevant facts, with the legal analysis, with copies of relevant documents, with your power of attorney, uh, and you just basically make the best case you can. Now, a CPA can represent the taxpayer during this process. Uh, you've got a, a very firm deadline. Again, you, don't, you can't miss this by a day. You have to file that protest within 63 days after receipt of the Notice of Deficiency Determination. Once the appeal is filed, it will eventually be uh, assigned to an appeal officer. The appeals officers are usually former auditors. Uh, it's kind of been the practice here the last few years. Uh, they are former auditors who oversee the process with respect to the case, work with the attorneys to set deadlines, uh, manage the appeal conference, and then communicate with the attorneys later if there's any additional information requested. I say attorneys, but it could be CPAs or it could be the client uh, uh, himself or herself. Um, so you know, the appeals officer is basically your kind of first point of contact. Eventually the, the appeal will be scheduled uh, and the appeal process is very informal. Uh, it, it will take place in a conference room <clears throat> at the tax commission. Uh, now there may be, I'm, I'm actually not sure about this, whether there are opportunities to have the appeal hearing 
in other cities in the state. I've never had that done or seen it done or even heard of it being done. The tax commission will uh, have hearings by phone. So if, if you or your client cannot attend in person, then it can be done over the phone. But, but if you are there in person, it's going to be in a conference room at the tax commission. Very informal. There is no uh, sworn testimony. Um, it is recorded, although not transcribed. It, it, uh, there's no court reporter present, but it is, it is recorded uh, so that other commissioners can listen in later in the process if they need to. Because the way the process works is that there is going to be one commissioner at the hearing. It will be the commissioner in charge of that type of tax. Could be sales tax. If it's a sales tax case, it's going to be the commissioner in charge of sales tax. Currently, Commissioner Zweigert. Uh, if it's income tax, it would be the the commissioner uh, in charge of income tax. There are other types of taxes too. By the way, there's kilowatt hour tax. There's hotel and motel tax. There are other miscellaneous taxes that are assigned to different commissioners. Um, but that commissioner who will who oversees this type of tax and will be present during that conference is called an oversight commissioner. The oversight commissioner and the appeal officer <clears throat> will hear all the evidence and eventually make a recommendation as to a decision to the full commissioner, to the full commission. The oversight commissioner does not have a vote in the final commission determination. So it'll be the other three commissioners who don't have any experience in the, in the area uh, in which the tax was being disputed. It's the other three commissioners who will end up making a decision. So you can probably count on the fact that they will rely on the recommendation of the, uh, the oversight commissioner and or the appeals officer. Usually those, those two recommendations would be aligned. Uh, one issue to be aware of, uh, or one thing to be concerned about, if you file your appeal, I've had this issue come up before. Uh, let's say you've got a case involving, uh, oh, let's say it's an income tax case and it's, it's a, a multi-state corporate taxpayer and the issue is whether or not a certain type of income is business income or non-business income. Or maybe it's uh, the, the calculation of the apportionment factor for apportioning the income to Idaho. There's only, one, there's only one issue that you appeal. During the appeal process, somehow the appeal officer or, or one of the commissioners or maybe one of the attorneys says, oh, wait a minute, it looks like you shouldn't have claimed uh, investment tax credit for part of this, part of this tax. Um, it's, it's uncertain under current law whether or not they can bring that, us that issue up on appeal where it has not been an issue. Uh, at the audit stage and not an issue that was relevant to your protest. But it's certainly possible that, uh, that that can be raised. So just just be aware of that. The hearing before the tax commission, again, it's informal and it's usually short. Uh, most of the hearings I've had over there are like an hour long. I usually summarize the, the uh, presentation, summarize the arguments I've made in the protest. Uh, a lot of times I will have supplemented the protest prior to the hearing. I'll summarize all that, um, maybe have some illustrative exhibits, and then just stand for questions. And usually the commissioner uh, 
or one of the attorneys. Uh, there usually will be one or two deputy attorney generals uh, present during that hearing, along with the appeals officer and the commissioner. And usually the appeals officer uh, and the attorneys will have questions, um, as well as the commissioner. The audit staff is not represented at that hearing. And according to the tax commission rules, they are not to be consulted with on what we call an ex parte basis. In other words, without including the taxpayer in the communication, the audit staff is not to be uh, consulted or communicated with. So keep that in mind. Uh, prior to the conference, about the only input from the audit staff is the audit staff will submit a protest, what's called a protest summary, which basically is a response to what the taxpayer argued in its protest. And you want to make sure to get that protest summary, and they won't give it to you unless you ask for it. So it's it's kind of a, a, a bit of a trap for the unwary here. Unless you know of this process, you wouldn't even know to ask for this protest summary. So make sure to make sure to ask for it. After the hearing, the Tax Commission has 180 days to issue a decision. Um, that deadline can be extended if they need more time, and I usually give them more time. It'll run if you give them additional information after the hearing. That, that'll trigger a restart of that 180-day um, uh, time period. Uh, once you get a decision, if it is adverse, you can appeal it to the district court. Again, there is a BTA alternative, a Board of Tax Appeals alternative, but that's not available in income taxes, income tax or sales tax cases if the amount in dispute is more than $25,000. So uh, chances are you're going to want to appeal a sales or an income tax case to the district court. The court hears the case de novo, uh, which is Latin for basically from the beginning, uh, or, or new. Uh, it, uh, it, it means that there's a, a clean slate before the district court. The court does not give any deference to any factual determination of the tax commission or to any of its legal conclusions. So it is, it really is a fair process in Idaho that you have an independent uh, appeal uh, with no with no deference, and that's different than in a lot of states. Uh, a lot of states have processes where there's more of a a, a rigorous, uh, thorough appeal at the administrative level, say at a Department of Revenue, and then once that decision is made, then it's a tougher standard in in the district court appeal. Uh, often it's it's that uh, the district court would would affirm the Department of Revenue decision if it's based on substantial evidence. So we've got a, a, a lot better standard in Idaho for appeals, um, a lot better for taxpayers. One requirement of an appeal is that you have to deposit 20% uh, of the disputed taxes with the tax commission before you file your appeal. And again, that's a jurisdictional requirement. If you don't do that, then the appeal will be dismissed. And that, that happened once to a a colleague, not in my firm, uh, but in another firm who just forgot to make the 20% deposit and uh, the appeal was dismissed. In terms of settlement, a lot of cases are settled uh, in the tax commission. Uh, 
it's a, it's a more complicated process than the IRS. There's not a, an independent office that handles settlements and appeals, but you can make a settlement offer uh, at any point after the audit, before or after that informal hearing before the commission, at any time during a district court appeal. I've even made an offer during the Supreme Court appeal process. So it's definitely an option that you'll want to consider. There's a specific rule that governs settlements and a statute, actually. Um, and it requires that, a, that a, a settlement offer over a certain dollar amount, I think it's uh, $50,000, uh, has to be submitted to a committee with two commissioners and a member of the audit staff and, uh, and one of the attorneys, uh, one of the deputy attorney generals. That committee is to give a recommendation to the commission as to whether or not the settlement offer should be accepted. Um, but it, you know, just be aware, it kind of gives the audit staff a, uh, you know, another voice in the process. And if you've got uh, an aggressive auditor or an aggressive audit staff, sometimes they can stand in the way of, uh, of a settlement. Um, but I would say, you know, if, if a case is worthy of, of settlement, if there are risks to the taxpayer, and of course there are always costs, then settlement is, is something to consider and it's something that we often do. And even if they're not accepted, it's, it's pretty common for the, for the commission to come back with a counteroffer. So just be aware of that process. Uh, I know I've been going for a while, uh, but uh, I'll just cover some of the some of the substantive issues, and, and again, we're talking more about process here. But uh, some of the substantive issues you may encounter, or at least I see a lot in appeals of state tax issues, and again, this would be in other states as well. This issue of business income and, and non-business income is a big issue for a lot of taxpayers uh, that operate in in many states. Um, Business income is going to be apportioned. Uh, it's going to be apportioned using the apportionment formulas among all the states in which the taxpayer operates. Business income is basically income from the regular course of your business. Non-business income is going to be allocated, 100% of the income is going to be allocated to the state uh, in which the taxpayer has its primary residence or its primary operations. So if it's Idaho, you know, if it's the J.R. Simplot company and they have a, a big capital gain from the sale of a business that, that operate, let's say they sell a business that operates in Australia, um, the issue is, is, is that gain going to be subject to apportionment among all the states or is it going to be allocated to Idaho entirely? And, and that is often a very contentious issue because some of the some of the properties that are sold by multi-state taxpayers often don't have or no longer have a, a, a real connection to the, to the, gen, to the general uh, business of, of the taxpayer. They may be investments. Um, so um, that, that is frequently content, uh, a contentious issue. Other issues that come up a lot, uh, credits, uh, investment tax credit, uh, the tax commission is is pretty tough on that. I mean, it has to be tangible personal property for it to be qualifying for the investment tax credit. 
by the way, you know, as you probably know, Idaho is one of the few states that even has an investment tax credit. Um, there hasn't been a federal tax credit, a general uh, investment tax credit since I think the mid '90s. Uh, research and development credits are are often litigated in appeals. Uh, deductions, of course, are uh, frequent uh, topics of appeal. Capital gain characterization um, and the capital gain determination is different than for federal purposes. It has to be Idaho property for it to qualify for the Idaho capital gain deduction. And let me just make a point here on on audits of uh, Idaho taxes because it was kind of a surprise to me when I first started practicing. When Idaho audits an Idaho income tax return, it is not only the Idaho aspects of that return that are subject to audit. It is the, the you know, as you know, the, the federal return, federal taxable income is the starting point for the calculation of Idaho taxable income. So federal taxable income is fair game for the tax commission in, in an audit. Uh, and I've had a lot of cases where, you know, I'm kind of scratching my head. Why is, why, why is the state of Idaho worried about uh, a federal deduction that the IRS did not challenge? Uh, even, even in an audit, I've had cases where there was an audit, which we don't see that often in <laughs> federal audits anymore, but even in a federal audit, uh, the IRS passed on it and the, and the tax commission, um, took issue with it. So just be aware that, that, that is always a possibility in the sales tax area. A lot of the issues involve exemptions, uh, particularly the production exemption, uh, the production exemption, as many of you probably know, is available to a taxpayer if you buy equipment or materials that are used in producing a product that is later going to be subject to sales tax, then you don't have to pay tax on the equipment or on the materials. Uh, because if you did, there'd be a, what we call a pyramiding of tax. You're paying taxes at different levels of the kind of distribution chain. Uh, so there is this exemption called a production exemption, but it's only available in certain situations. It's, it's only for equipment that is directly used in the production process. It wouldn't be used for transport, transportation equipment, for instance, that takes products from the plant to somewhere else. It usually isn't available for, uh, uh, remediation or uh, treatment of, of waste, although there's another exemption for that. Um, it has to be tangible personal property. It can't be any part of the real estate. So that's, uh, that's an issue we see a lot of. And, and that raises another uh, issue that comes up a lot in, in sales tax cases. And that is, is it, is it personal property or real property? The tax treatment of a lot of different transactions depends on whether or not it's, ten, it's, it's real property or tangible personal property. For instance, if it's an improvement to real property, then the contractor is responsible for paying use tax on the materials. And there is no tax on the finished product. But if it's tangible personal property, even if a contractor's involved, it is seen as essentially a sale of the tangible personal property subject to sales tax on the full amount of the, uh, the value of the uh, product, including any labor that went into it. So 
don't be surprised if an issue comes up during an audit as to whether property is real property or personal property. Now, I just want to briefly cover property tax appeals. Uh, property taxes uh, are an area that, first of all, politically active for the last five years at least, uh, people complaining about property tax values. Uh, you know, as, as property values have, have increased and increased, um, property taxes themselves have increased. Although most of you probably know there's not a there's not a one-to-one -one relationship between increases in value and the amount of property taxes. If everyone's property doubled in value, but the budgets of local taxing authorities stayed the same, then your taxes wouldn't change at all. Um, taxes are assessed according to value. And if everybody's, everybody's value increased exactly the same, then they, the taxes would be apportioned in, in exactly the same way that they were. So the problem with increased property taxes is a function of two things. One is increases in taxing authorities' budgets. Uh, if the budgets go up, then taxes are going to go up. The other factor is differences among taxpayers. Um, maybe your value went up 100% and everybody else's value went up only 50%. If that occurs, then you're going to be bearing a, a heavier uh, tax or property tax burden. The appeal process is, is very, I don't know what the word is, awkward uh, in, in Idaho. You will get your property valuation assessment in late May or early June. Then you have a series of very tight deadlines. Uh, you have like a three, two or three week window. It's like you get, you have to appeal by like the third Monday in June to the uh, County Board of Equalization. After, if, you, if you don't uh, prevail before the County Board of Equalization, then you appeal either to the Board of Tax Appeals or to District Court. Uh, and the time, the, the deadline for doing that, I think, is 30 days. But the, the, the big time crunch is in after you get your notice of valuation, you've got two to three weeks to appeal, and then the hearing before the Board is going to be heard within two or three weeks after that because they have to finalize values by the end of August. The appeal process is, is also not very satisfying. You go before the, the, board of, uh, the Board of Equalization, whose members are the same as the Board of County Commissioners, and there may be 500 people appealing their property tax valuations. So they're probably going to give you 10 minutes for your appeal. Uh, you know, I'm exaggerating a little bit. It could be a little longer. It depends on how many people are appealing. But it's, it's, a, it's a tough job for the, the board because they've got a lot of people appealing and not much time to decide them. Uh, so just be aware that the best practice really is that once you get, <clears throat> excuse me, once you get your notice of assessment, contact the appraiser who, who uh, did the appraisal and, and is responsible for that, that valuation. I did that on my property here this last year. Uh, I just called the appraiser. I said, hey, and, and, and be ready when you call. I had a couple of comparables. Uh, you know, I just went on Zillow and, uh, and looked for, you know, some other sales of property that were about the same square footage and in the same neighborhood. And, 
And I mean, I didn't get exactly the value that I wanted, but she, she did come down on the value and uh, it, was a, it was a good outcome. So that's the most efficient way to handle property tax appeals. Um, is to try to work it out with the, uh, with the appraiser in the assessor's office. If you can't and have to go through the, the process, I mean, the way property taxes work, I mean, you could be, have a million dollar difference in valuation, but if the, if the levy rate is only uh, 1%, then that's, you know, a $10,000 difference in taxes. Um, and I mean, it's kind of hard to, you, you file an appeal, hire a lawyer and file, file an appeal. And if that case goes on for a couple of years, you've probably spent $10,000 in, in legal fees. So it, it makes, it makes appeals tough. Now you can justify it on kind of a cost benefit analysis because there is a multi-year effect. If you, if you don't appeal and you just let these values ride from year to year, then the excess tax you're paying it obviously builds up from year to year. So you just kind of have to run the numbers and, and see whether or not an appeal makes sense. Appeals of property tax cases, just like income and sales tax, are on a de novo basis. So you get into district court or the Board of Tax Appeals, you can hire an expert, you can, you can do things you did not do earlier in the process, and the court will, will receive all that evidence. Um, valuation issues are, are, are the most common issues that are appealed, but, but exemption issues are, are also, um, very common. Uh, I know Jonathan, you've had some recent experience with, with exemptions. Mm -hmm. Uh, what do you, what do you tend to deal with on exemption issues? I mean, every single year, I guess, depending on the type of exemption, there are multiple kinds that you might apply for. Certain exemptions are going to require you apply each and every year. And if you miss that, that application, you're going to miss out on your exemption. And so that's a, a common issue that we see come up over again. And depending on how you're trying to categorize the property and what you're looking for under certain types of exemptions, you could argue that, that you might apply for one that you don't need to, to uh, submit an application each and every year. So there's a lot of variability there. You just need to be aware of what type of property you have, how you're kind of categorizing it, and which exemption you're going to be applying for. And then it's just a similar process to what you described with uh, going before the Board of Equalization if you are going to appeal a decision, if it was assuming it's a rejection of your property tax exemption. And Again, that's made up of the same commissioners that decided whether or not you got the exemption in the first place, and then it just scales from there. So, yeah, there are just as there are in income tax and sales tax, there are many, many exemptions enacted for a lot of different purposes. Some may be kind of constitutional purposes that uh, you know, government property is not mm -hmm. taxable uh, just because of the. Of the on the federal side because of the federal constitution on the state side because you know you got one government taxing another that doesn't make any sense uh there are exemptions for you know religious purposes for instance churches are are exempt uh, a lot of nonprofits are exempt if it has a charitable purpose but that's not automatic either the the law surrounding charitable exemptions for property tax purposes is really pretty narrow. There's, there's a lot of case law on it. Um, 
One thing to be aware of in any kind of exemption appeal, and this applies to both property tax and also income and sales tax, is that exemption statutes are interpreted strictly by the courts. If there's any ambiguity in a st- in an exemption statute, it's going to be interpreted in favor of the government. Um, now, that doesn't mean you lose um, because there may be other issues of interpretation that work in your favor, but that is definitely not going to be uh, helpful to you if it's an exemption. On the other hand, keep in mind, especially for income tax and sales tax purposes, if there's an ambiguity in a statute that levies the tax or that describes what is taxable, those ambiguities are interpreted in favor of the taxpayer. So that's an argument you're going to want to make whenever you can. Uh, One other point on on valuation appeals, I just uh, make this point in closing. I mean, you, you want to focus on comparables, right? You want to try to get evidence on what other type of property is comparable to yours. You want to look at recent sales. Has your property been bought or sold recently? That's pretty good evidence of value. One thing that I've seen come up fairly often is, and sometimes it doesn't come up until the appeal process, is the taxpayer has gotten an appraisal for uh, for financing purposes. Uh, and usually you want to get a loan, you, you want as high a value as you can. Uh, and the taxpayer will, will come to us and say, oh, gosh, do I have to, you know, am I going to have to produce this, this appraisal? And I say, yes, I'm afraid you are. And that's going to be one of the first things the other side asks for is, is for that appraisal. So, you know, um, consider that before you even, even think about filing an appeal. I mean, you could file it to, at the first level, but if, if it's going to be contested further down the road, just be aware that all that is, is going to have to come out. Um, I think, Jonathan, I think we've covered most of the territory on tax appeals. Yeah. If anyone has any questions, uh, you know, we're, we're in the book. We're, we're on the Internet. Uh, the, just, just Google the Holly Trox, Google Holly Troxel uh, on your computer and uh, the bios, uh, my bio and Jonathan's bio and, and for our entire tax group is, is on the Holly Troxel website and as well as our contact information. So give us a call or reach out to us by email if you have any questions. But otherwise, uh, thanks for your attention. Thank you. Thank you.